Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spake all <clears throat> these words. If you want to stand, that's fine. I got two scriptures. I don't mean to offend anybody. I know that's a tradition. And if you want to honor the word of the Lord, that's fine. But I'm going to hit those and I'm going to go. So then you're going to sit down. God spake all these words. Say words. Saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. You can be seated. Many have heard them. Many know them, even by memory, since a child. They're in books. They're on walls. They're inscribed in plaques and printed in pictures. They have been memorized by some, memorialized by others. They've definitely been fought over. They've definitely been protested. By some and many even, they have been prized. They've been studied, but by others, they have been shunned and forsaken. We call them the Ten Commandments. Actually, theologically, from a definition standpoint, God never really called them commandments, but rather the Hebrew word for them were just words. To the Hebrews, they were the 10 words, but much more than just a list of 10 individual words. Rather, they were 10 uniquely divine utterances. They were a word from the Lord. Like the prophets who later would say, the word of the Lord came unto me. That is what they were. They were a word. Say word. They were divine in the fact that God, when, when sent thunder and lightning and smoke on the mountain, when Moses read them to the children of Israel, it scared them so much that they say, we don't, don't bring us that close to God anymore. Moses, you come talk to us. Don't, don't let God's voice and God's word get that close to us because of the awesome display of his divinity that was there when Moses spoke those words to his people. Exodus 34 and 28 says that they were divine because God wrote them in stone with his own finger, not once, but twice wrote them in stone tablets. They were divine because not only were they miraculously contrived and produced, but they would become part or the core of a covenant between God and his people. They were messages from God that we would become the superstructure, the step-by-step daily living guidelines. They weren't more important than any other parts of the law that were, there was a whole lot more to the law than just these 10 words. And they weren't more important, but in following them, they captured the essence of God's whole covenant. Yes, they were full of morality, but they were more than morality. These 10 words of the Lord were covenant. Jesus, and they weren't just Old Testament fodder. They weren't just Old Testament truth. Jesus reached back and pulled them into the New Testament covenant for us today. And he told us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind in Matthew 22. He said, this is the first great, first and great commandment. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And then he reached back to Sinai and he pulled those 10 words forward and said, all these two commandments hang all the law and even the prophets. He reached back and pulled that Old Testament covenant into the New Testament covenant and hung on the truths of the New Testament concept of loving God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and loving others with a love that is as great as the love that you have for yourself. These 10 words work out the details of loving God and loving people. Four words from the Lord telling us, four commandments, four words telling us how God wants to be loved himself. And six words or six commandments showing us how to demonstrate love for other people. The apostles also clearly illustrated that connection between the 10 words and God's New Testament love. Paul said the 10 words were actually a practical living out of our love towards God and his love towards others. John wrote and said, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments, they're not burdensome, they're not grievous, but they echo within the heart of somebody that's been changed on the inside to follow God on the outside. You got to remember the Old Testament law, it was given to them. Brother Paul, you taught on this today. It was given to that Old Testament church to teach them how to walk with him, how to live for him, how to have relation with him and how to serve him. They didn't know. They didn't know. They were surrounded and steeped in Egypt's culture, knowing that they were different, but still surrounded by something that fought against everything that they knew to be truth. No, they were not Egyptians, but they in many ways were full of Egypt. It seems like that's kind of where we find ourselves at times. We're not Egyptians. We're not like anything else, but we can find ourselves full of Egypt. I want to ask you today, are we in danger? Are we in danger of being willing to accept the concepts of God's love and loving his people, but unwilling to execute the steps to do so. Because I'm gonna preach you and tell you that despite common teaching and common belief these days, relationship with God cannot be detached from practical living. In other words, you still have to do to be. And the rubber still has to meet the road. And this walk with God, this pursuit of Jesus, this pursuit of something above and beyond this world is more than just mental assent and acceptance of some sort of dogma, doctrine, or philosophy. You can get in a car. You can say you're going somewhere. You can say you're doing something. But until you start that engine, until you shift it into gear, until you step on the gas, honey, you are still standing still. I'm trying to preach today and for the next few weeks that loving God will get into your living. 
It will get into how you walk. It'll get into how you talk. It'll get into how you love others and how you love God. It will change your behavior. It'll change your mind. It'll change your spirit. And if you let it and you don't know him today, he'll come in on the inside and make it all possible. Let me just stop off here and say, if all it is is a bunch of laws, then I'm telling you, it's impossible for all of us. But if there is something that changes us, that enables us to do what God said we can do, then all of a sudden things are possible. Can I tell you, that's where the New Testament comes in. That's where Acts 2.38 comes in. Come on, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And the old timers used to preach it. Power to walk right. Power to talk right. And then they said power to spit right, white. You can take that for what it's worth. Are we in danger of embracing concepts but not willing to pay the price to allow those concepts to get into us? I say this, let's go back to basics. Let's go back to the things we know produce spiritual success in our lives. Let, let's do more than just envelop and embrace the concept of God's love. Let's say, what does it mean to embrace? What is the superstructure and the steps and the, the details that work out? These 10 words work out the details, the details of what it means to love God and what it means to love people. So for the next few weeks, we're going to study them. We're going to study these words, these words from the Lord, these utterances, these divine instructions that encapsulate and these divine details that absolutely put together and hang upon and give the premise and are the essence of loving God and loving people. I want to introduce two words to you today. And I know you've been here a long time, so just understand, I've been waiting to preach, so I'm hanging in the balance. I wanted to preach my guts out and being mindful of your time. But just for a little while today, let me preach to you the two words of worship and idols. The first two words that God spoke to Moses to tell the people of God were concerning their worship and concerning the subject of idols. He said, thou shall have no other gods before me, and that thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven, or above, or anything in the earth beneath. Nothing above, nothing beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. You shall not serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me but showing and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and, say it with me, keep commandments. God wanted his people to know there's only one focus of worship. There's only one direction of worship. Jesus said, God said, I 
am the object. I am the focus. I am the center of your worship. Professionals called psychologists. They're people who study people and have concluded that across every culture, man is incurably religious. Give him time and he'll find something to worship. Give him time and he'll create something to worship. It's evidenced by the Egypt that God's people came out of. They worshiped rivers. They worshiped bodies of water, the sun, the elements of creation, sun and moon and stars. They worship animals, not even good ones. They worship frogs and lice and flies. In fact, if you study, most say that somewhere the, the number hovers around 1,400 different gods and goddesses worshiped on things that they could see around them. God's people came out of that. I said they came out of that. They were in 400 years in that culture. Do you know how many generations that is? That's at least 20 generations of influence day in and day out. And God knew they were going to a place called Canaan. God would take them there to claim it for their own promised land. But in that land, the Canaanites were known to worship over 200 gods. So God, so it stands to reason that as they came out and as they were about to go in, that God said, before I take you in, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to reindoctrinate you. I'm going to remind you of what the essence of worship is. He would teach them, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He would tell them in no uncertain terms that I'm the only option to worship. You're going to have other options, but I am the only option and I want that worship from you. He wouldn't talk to them about worship unless he wanted their worship. I want it for you, and there's no other gods beside. Literally, he means no other god but me. There's nothing else to worship. I think this generation needs a reminder. I think we need a reminder that God is looking for our worship and that we need to take everything that's been taken in our lives as an object to worship and set it aside and realize there's only one that's worthy to receive the glory. There's only one that's worthy to receive our praise and our honor, and that is Jesus. I wish somebody practice right now and say there's nobody else. I got a lot of things on my mind, but I'm in the presence of Almighty God, and there's nothing else. I believe that God is looking for our worship. I believe God's looking for your worship. He's looking for you to worship him. He's looking for you to open your mouth. He's looking for you to give him praise. He's looking for you to give him glory. He's looking for you to come out of your silence and join the chorus and join the choir and say, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I wonder if there's somebody in this house that said there's a Holy Ghost. There's something inside of me that refuses to be quiet, that refuses to be silent. I'm in his presence. I must worship him. There is none else. There is nobody else. There is no other thing that is worthy. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers. Woo! I said the true worshipers. A lot of people making noise. Huh. A lot of people that have got loud sound systems and they got incredible talents. But I'm gonna tell you, worship is not something 
that you can push a slider up on a board somewhere and make it better. No, that control is down here. That ain't got nothing to do with electronics or technology. There is something on the inside of us that in this last hour ought to be pushing the volume up. Is there anybody that says my worship has got to be more, not less? It's got to be better, not poorer. This ain't in my notes, but I'm going to tell you, I feel an unction, I feel a push of the Holy Ghost right now. Thank God for elders that have paved the way of worship for us. Some of you kids wouldn't even know what worship was if it wasn't for our elders. Look at Sister Rose standing up there. Got to have a walker to get around. But she's one of the five people in this place standing. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to tell you the elders knew the value of worship. When my grandmother passed away, she'd sit right there where Bishop is. And when services got too quiet, she'd get up. She couldn't even move. So she'd lean on that pew in front of her. And she'd do this little jig. I don't even know what it was. It probably wasn't hardly any. She'd barely move her feet. But when she did, this church broke open. Do you know why? Because there's something powerful about the way you worship God. Now, he wants your worship, but you need his response. Come on, just nudge your neighbor and say, he's looking. He's looking for you. Over and over in Scripture, man is commanded to worship. The book of Psalms in your Bible is an instruction manual for it. It tells you to clap. It tells you to raise your hands, to wave your hands, to dance, even if you can't. Tells you to dance. It tells you to sing. I'm just telling you. I know. I, I kid around. I use this term. It's not fair. And I don't want to. I'm not, in fact, I'm not going to say it. You don't have to be the active folks that join the altar around the front to make sure that their mind and their eyes are not distracted by anything else going on in the sanctuary. You don't have to be that person. But you do have to be a worshiper. I said, you do have to be a worshiper. And you gotta find whatever way. I don't care what it is. I'm gonna tell you what worship is not. It's not silence, and it's not motionless. There's gotta be a rubber meeting the road. The engine's gotta start. Somebody's gotta kick it into gear. Somewhere your hands ought to go up. Somewhere your voice ought to... God's looking for it. I'm just trying to tell you before I go on. God's looking for your worship. He said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Not only did it speak of our worship to him, it speaks of priority. God was saying, in essence, I'm first. I'm uno. Numero. Is that close? (laughs) Number one. Nothing else above me. Nothing else below me. I'm first. Nothing else is worth worshiping. I've been told, I've never been in the memory, I should have asked dad, but I've never been in the Marines, but I've told that the Marines are instructed and taught that no matter what their job or assignment is, that they are first a Marine. And they are first a, specifically a rifleman. 
which means that in times of war, it does not matter if they're driving a car. If they're called to the front lines, they've got to go to the front lines because before they're anything else, watch now, before they're anything else, they're a rifleman. I kind of feel that way about my worship. I can't speak for you. I'm just telling you me. I, I feel that way about I'm a worshiper before I'm anything else, before I'm a husband, before I'm a father, before I'm a son, before I'm a papa, before I'm a pastor, before I'm a ministrator, before I'm a singer, before whatever I am, I am first a worshiper. Because I can lose my job as a pastor. I, my wife, I can just make her frustrated where she don't want to put up with me anymore. My kids can disown me. I got all kinds of titles I can lose. But I can't afford to lose the title of worshiper. Because before I'm anything else, I am a worshiper of Jesus Christ. And you know what I found out? That when I leave it that way, I'm a better papa, I'm a better pastor, I'm a better believer. I... Is there anybody? See, that's why you're frustrated with what you are. You're trying to be all these other things. Why don't you go back to basics? Worship the Lord thy God. Only him shall thou worship. Jesus put it this way, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. He said, if you'll, if you'll pursue, if you'll aim at him, if you'll strive after him, his kingdom and his righteousness, his way, everybody say his way, his way of doing and being right, then all these things will be given to you besides. So first of all, God says this. He says, I want you to know I'm looking for worship and I'm the only thing worth worshiping. And then the second thing, so closely coupled that it's hard for me in my mind to separate. He says, don't change the object of your worship. That once you finally get it right, once you finally understand that I'm first, and that I'm worthy, and that I'm looking for you to worship me. Don't change a thing. Don't divert your attention. Don't divert your steps. Don't divert your life and your decisions to worship something besides me. Not only walking out of Egypt with this multiplicity of gods, where they were going, people had this tendency to create things of their own hands and worship. To create images of their own hands, their own creativity, their own counts. They literally beat them out of gold and carved them out of wood. And so God would say, thou shalt not make unto thee any, unto thee, don't you create any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, earth beneath, there is in the water under the earth. You should not, don't you bow down, don't change the object, did you hear me? Don't change the object of your worship. Not bow yourself down to them. You will not serve them. And I'm gonna tell you why, because I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. 
They were idols of animals and gods and goddesses and images. While while I have serious questions about how some of you feel about your dogs. For the most part, I struggle to believe that any here today have statues at home that you are worshiping. Yet I do feel to preach against our American idols. I do feel to preach against things that we have created by our own means and with our own hands. And while they may not be statues on our shelves in our living rooms, they take different forms and they still do the very same things that those images and those little statues did for the children of Israel. They take God's place. Things that we create, situations we create, circumstances we create, all in an effort to make ourselves better and comfort. But God says, I won't deal with it. I will not exist with that. I'm a jealous God. Don't let a physical representation of something that takes my place be found among you. I'm preaching whether you like it or not. He says, I'm eternal. I will not share my space with something that is temporal. I am forever. I will not coexist with something that's temporary. I will not allow flesh to glory in my presence. He said, I don't want to see an idol among you. Don't you create anything. What are you trying to get at, Pastor? I'm trying to get to a question I want to ask you. What idols are in our houses? Because if we are not careful... We can fill our homes and lives with altars that destroy instead of altars that deliver. We can fill our lives with things that actually take us away from God instead of things that drive us to him. Modern day aisles are created to feed our appetites and not the good ones. It's our most base appetites. The appetite for entertainment and the appetite that we have for convenience and the appetite we have for comfort. What sounds are in your home, ladies and gentlemen? I'm asking everybody in here, anybody that'll listen to me, what's What is just permeating the airwaves in your home? Is it confusion? Is it argument? Is it media? Is God's name being cursed? Is it sexual content that portrays things that hurt God's heart? Are the airwaves of your house filled with declarations and decisions and priorities that really just do what the Old Testament problem that that God was dealing with? They set up idols. They set up places and changes of worship that take your time, that take your attention, that take your passion, and take your giftings. I'm just telling you, what kind of person are we if we take everything God has given us? Oh, it's getting quiet. I'm going to preach anyway. Everything that God's invested in us, he didn't give you that gift, Brother Paul. He didn't give you that gift so that you could use it out there or you could comfort yourself. Everything he's given us, it's for his glory. It's for his purpose. It's for his power. How dare we? How dare we change the object of worship? Everything I've got, it belongs to him. I'm going to tell you what, I refuse. I refuse. I stand my ground right now. I refuse to take what God has given me and throw it away to this world. Is there anybody else that come on something stirring in you right now? You ought to stand up. I refuse. God put it in me. God gave it to me. Everything in my hand, everything in my being, it belongs to him. I will not change. The object of my worship. 
Does God take precedent in your home? God said, don't do it. Don't you do it. I'm jealous. Look at your neighbor right now and say, he's jealous. He's jealous of the time that you're investing other places. He's jealous of the effort that you're expending on other things. Mentally, emotionally, physically. Some people make idols out of worry. God said you weren't meant to expel mental exertion on worry. And the end of that kind of idol worship puts you in a place of depression, in a place of even turning back towards God. And I'll be careful here. I realize people have medical conditions, and I'll just leave that there. But there's too many people that are turning to medicine and doctors in this world, trying to deal with a spiritual problem in their life. Thank you, doctor. A spiritual problem in their life. Trying to go to some man and tell them exactly how they need to be healed. I'm just going to tell you there is healing in the wings of our Lord. There's a balm in Gilead. And with his stripes, we are healed in our minds, in our bodies. God said, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't let that take precedence. Don't, I will not share with your base natural desires. I will not share time with your hobbies. I will not share time with your items of comfort. I will not share time with your, your willingness to try to make things convenient. God said, don't do it. And here's another reason, not just because he's jealous. He said, don't do it because it will affect your children. Now I'm about to preach. You might want to buckle up if you're a parent right now. And I'm going to pray just for a second that my, my attitude stays right. But idols affect children. He said, I'm jealous. Thou should not bow down thyself to him. I'm a jealous God. And then he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. I do not think that God is saying, I'm going to put your sin on your kids. But I think God is making it very clear that your sin does affect your children. And your priorities have a vast effect on your children. And what you call first and what you call second have a huge impact upon your children. I'm asking you, what is in your house? I read this week a, a haunting verse in Jeremiah 17 as he prophesied to Israel that was about to go in captivity because of the gross idolatry and the sin and the rebellion that they had given themselves to in forsaking the God of their creation. And he looked at them and here's what he said. Your children, remember your altars. Can I just tell that? That's been in my mind and heart all week long. Listen, parents, listen to me. Your children will remember your altars. They're going to remember what you set up in your house. They're going to remember what you tear down in your house. And when they get to a station in life where they don't know which way to go, they're going to have something to fall back on. I remember when mom and dad, they looked this square in the eye and they said, no, 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 that won't be here. I remember when mom and dad, they built an altar and it pointed me to God. I'm just telling you, your children, remember your altars. God knew, he knew they were going into Canaan. 
They knew they were going into idol worship. It was so perverse and so heinous that literally people, if you ever, ever read the phrase, and they cause their children to pass through the fire. That's a beautiful, nice way of saying they burned their firstborn babies alive in worship to the idols that they thought could help them. And you say, we would never do that. How grotesque. But I'm asking you, how many days this week have you done that? How many days have you allowed idols in your home and in your family and in your lives? Oh, no, you're not throwing them into a literal fire, but you could be throwing them into hell's fire if you don't take this seriously today and realize there's altars that need to be built in my home and there's altars that need to be teared down. There's only one that needs to be worshipped in my home and everything else I can cannot allow it to change the object of that worship. Let me just share, if you don't know, prayer and fasting ought to be an altar in your house. You ought to build up that altar. Your kids ought to catch you praying. Your kids ought to catch you fasting. I know God said do it in secret, but it's kind of hard to not do it in front of the kids. But your kids ought to catch you building that altar. The word of God ought to be an altar in your home. They ought to have the word of God readily available. They ought to hear it in your home. They ought to, mom and dad ought to quote it to them. They ought to get sick of the word of God being quoted to them. I'm telling you, you raise up a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart. That's not me. That's the word of God. That's him saying that. I'm asking you, precious parent of God, what altars are? are you building in your home? A connection with God's people ought to be an altar in your home. The church ought to be your best friends. I said the church ought to be your best friends. Well, I can't find any friends. Then what are you connected to? I, preach, I was preaching and teaching on this Wednesday night. Connection is an embrace. And it's really hard. I'm going to go hug my wife again. It's really hard to have a real embrace and not there be something coming from both ways. Everybody with me? And now this is just a contact, okay? Now come on, help me with this now, this time. This is an embrace. It goes both ways. But I want you to notice I initiated it. Everybody's got a responsibility to initiate contact with the people of God. Don't tell me you're by yourself. You're sitting in the middle of a crowd of people that love you. Don't you listen to the lies of the devil. This place is a house of love. This place is a house of communion. This place, this church family is a house of fellowship. And it only happens when everybody takes the responsibility. I'm going to build altars in my home. My kids are going to know your best friends are in the house of God. Your best influences are in the house of God. I've already talked about this, but praise ought to be an altar in your home. Parents, could you please teach your children to worship God. If you leave it to the church family, right now things are going good. Nobody could walk in here and say, well, how do I do it? It's everywhere. But perish the thought that we don't get everything right. 
The music was a little off that day. And the, the preacher didn't, and the, the people were tired. And it was after a holiday. And you'd expended all your energy with your family. But we were here to worship. Paris, the thought, please don't leave it to the church to teach your children how to worship. They ought to see it at home. I said they ought to see it at home. There ought to be worship in your house. Listen, I'm about to get crazy. There ought to be dancing in your house. There ought to be men lifting in your house. There ought to be voice raising in your house. There ought to be shouting in your house. If this is the only place that you worship, you are missing the point. Worship is not a service. It's not a moment. It's a lifestyle. You do it all the time. My life, my life is an act of worship to him. Giving ought to be an altar in your house. Sharing the gospel ought to be an altar in your house. They ought to wake, they ought to grow up understanding I'm supposed to tell somebody about this good news. I'm supposed to share with somebody. They ought not to wait until they get to youth class and learn a lesson and have a student pastor tell them. Now actually, because of what's happened in your life, you should share it with somebody else. They ought to come in and say, Mama taught me that. Daddy taught me that. I knew that from as young as I can remember. Because if we don't listen to these words, and worship is not what it should be, and idols are greater and more in existing than they should be. Here's what I fear. I fear our children will do what this generation seems to be doing, setting God on a shelf with all the other things that are being worshipped as an option that God is not first and only my fear is that when our children grow up and they're challenged and they will be if I was getting all upset about what this state is trying to do in schools and I'm upset too but you think this is the first time that the devil's trying to challenge parents about their kids. I'm going to tell you the first offense, and I'm going to be very careful here because I've got, I, I, I want to I protect, I've got grandbabies. I want to protect them too. But I'm going to tell you how I feel about it. All right, can I, that'll keep me safe. This is how I feel about it. My first defense of my children is not to run the legislature. My first defense of children is not to empty my bank account and find a private school that'll somehow just mirror every one of my values within an honesty. Sometimes even doctrinally, they don't do that. That's not my first defense. I'm not saying it's not one. My first defense is I'm going to teach them the word of God. I'm going to put the word of God inside of them. Because I can protect them all I want. But there's coming a day where Satan's going to challenge them. And I want something deep down on the inside of them that said, my mama told me, my daddy told me, my papa told me, my nana told me. I know. I've got an altar. I've got an altar that's been built in my life. I want you to stand with me here today. If we don't, then folks, we risk the next generation figuratively falling into the fire 
of everything worshipped by our culture. And God will become just like everything else. Relegated to the place, point, and passion of everything else. Or even worse, disregarded altogether. And God says, I'm not like everything else. I'm above everything else. I shall have no other gods before me. I shall not make unto me any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. God said, you will not serve anything but me. For I'm jealous, and your children are at stake. But as tough as that sounds, let me tell you, he didn't stop talking there. Here's the covenant. God said, I'll show mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. I wonder today if there's anybody willing to keep Jesus in the middle, understanding that it won't just impact me, but it will impact generations should the Lord tarry. God's looking for a worshiper who will continue now and forevermore to know who they worship. And I've just got a sneaking suspicion that he could find some of those folks right in this room. Is there anybody? Anybody want to join that crowd? Maybe you're not there yet. You can join. Membership is open. Open for the worshipers, the things of God. Come on, is there their parents or their grandparents, uncles and aunts, cousins saying, I'm a worshiper. I don't worship anybody else. I just come in this altar. Maybe, maybe you've never received the empowering gift of the Holy Ghost. Maybe you're like, yes, I want those concepts in your life. Then start back to basics. Come on up here. Pray for the Spirit of the Lord to baptize you with His power and presence. Come on, the Holy Ghost is in this house. I've already prayed for people to receive the Holy Ghost in today's service. If you've never been baptized in Jesus' name and your sins been remitted from you and washed away, if you've never turned your face to God in repentance, then I'm telling you, today's a great day. You ought to do it right now. You ought to build an altar that points you to heaven. You ought to build an altar that points you towards God today. Come on, is there anybody? There's a lot of altar building that's going on at the front and all over this house. There's a lot of people that are saying, Lord, brick by brick, stone by stone, I'm going to build a place in my life where you can come down and you can change me. Come on. Come on. Lift up your voice. That's it. Lift up your voice. Who cares who's around you? This is your altar. This is your altar. It doesn't matter. Come on. It's, it's me. It's my life. My kids on the line. Oh God, there's there's altars got to come down. There's altars got to come down in my home. There's spirits and attitudes. They're not from you, Lord. To worship you, I live, I live to worship you. I've worshipped my way and I've worshipped my thoughts and I've worshipped my philosophies how things should be. I'm seeking first the kingdom. I, things that you say and do are right. 
your righteousness. Come on, that's it. Just get lost in Him before you leave here.